We're continuing our series uh, called When We Were Kings as we walk through the book of 1 Kings. I hope that you guys have enjoyed this series. Uh, I've really enjoyed kind of preaching through it, kind of learning the history and studying and spending time in 1 Kings. There's so much that happens in the book of 1 Kings that is so relevant to our culture right now and to what's going on in our world right now. It's almost like there's similar realities happening culturally there as there is happening culturally right now uh, in America. And today we want to talk about division. Uh, it's fitting because there's, a, there's something happening in, on Tuesday that seems significant in our country. There's two old guys and everybody's debating who the better old guy is uh, and, and everybody's mad about it. And so that's happening this week. And, and as we enter into this week, we thought it would be good to spend some time talking about division. Uh, it feels like in our culture, there are all these dividing factors that keep creating division between one another. There is obviously the political division that seems to continue to escalate, particularly this time of year in our culture where uh, there are people who like their old guy and other people that like their old guy, and there's a debate and an anger about which old guy is better and frustration that begins to happen. There is, uh, there is relational stress that is happening. I think COVID has created a relational division uh, between people that are in the same house. I don't know about you guys. Uh, I'm ready for my children to go back to school. Like, uh, it is hard to work at home when there are three children taking all the internet space uh, and shouting. My children don't do uh, Zoom calls quietly. They shout on their Zoom calls. And so there's a lot of shouting uh, and noise, and I would just love to have a quiet moment. I don't know any parents out there would just be happy to just have um, some quiet at some point during the day. So there's division in the house. There's division in families uh, all across the country right now because we haven't been able to make touch points the way that we want to. And, and when we're not together, it, it feels like the division just grows a little further. There's racial division in our country that seems to be increasing and growing and causes great um, hurt and pain to many. And, and, and as we look at all of these things, we see that the Bible teaches over and over and again that there is wisdom in here, practical wisdom that breaks down walls. The Bible teaches us about peacemaking. The Bible teaches us about unity. The Bible teaches us about the ways of the world and the ways of the kingdom, which we've been talking about over the past few weeks. And it teaches us that there is actually something bigger. There is something that can stop the divide from happening. There is something that can unify us and bring us together and create peace in a world of chaos. And as the world around us, as the culture around us continues to grow in this great divide between one another, we as the church get to model a different way. We as the church get to model a way of peace. We get to model a way of unity, a way of grace, a way of empathy, a way of love, a way of compassion. We get to actually live out the fruits of the Spirit in our life every single week and every single day. And although as a pastor, it's never my job to tell you who to vote for, it is my job to tell you how to treat others. Although it's not my job to tell you which candidate and which politics and policies you should live into, it is important for me to continue to say to you that Jesus influences your politics. Your politics do not influence Jesus. It is important that we root what we believe in the word of God, in the spirit of God, living out in the way of God in our life every single week. And there is a gospel truth that perfect love does what? It casts out fear. 
But right now, we're living in a cultural moment where paralyzing fear casts out love. All right, so when we talk about living into the kingdom versus living into the ways of the world, we have to recognize these patterns of the kingdom and these patterns of the world. The, the, the kingdom teaches us perfect love casts out fear. The world teaches us that paralyzing fear casts out love. And so we get to choose every single day which world are we going to live and exist in. Are we going to be people of the kingdom or are we going to be people of the world? We are strangers in this place. We are aliens in this world. We belong to a different country. We live in the economy of heaven and the economy of the kingdom, not in the economy of the world. So as we reach chapter 12 in 1 Kings, Solomon is dead. It's crazy how the Bible like, lifts up a character, makes them so important, and all of a sudden they're just dead and they're gone. Uh, it tells a short history of their lives, and the significant moments of Solomon's life are his wisdom, where he's choosing worldly wisdom, and his building of the temple. But Solomon dies, and as Solomon dies, uh, what happens is uh, he, he decides that he's going to give the kingdom to his son, Rehoboam. But what God says is because of Solomon's disobedience, because Solomon chose the world's way and not God's way, what I'm going to do is I'm going to split the kingdom. Right? So we're going to have a, a, a division in the kingdom that's going to cause two factions, one over here and one over here. And, and I'm going to kiss what God says. I'm going to keep my promise to David, which says one of your ancestors will be on the throne, but I'm also going to bring consequences for your disobedience of not following me. So God is both keeping his promises and disciplining his people. He's teaching his people to walk in his ways, but at the same time, he's keeping his promises. And so um, what happens is the stage is set for more political intrigue, for more power plays and ungodly activity in the name of worldly power, and there are two candidates. And neither of these candidates actually, actually perfectly represent the kingdom of God. Both of them have good things about them, and both of them have terrible things about them. And the two candidates are Rehoboam. Rehoboam is the son of Solomon. Uh, because he's the son of Solomon, Solomon wants to name him king. The nation wants to name him king. But we're going to see a lot of Rehoboam's flaws as we continue and walk through this. The second uh, is Jeroboam. It's interesting they have similar names. Rehoboam, Jeroboam, right? Uh, and so it's easy to remember. Right? So, so Jeroboam over here is a man who Scripture talks about is a man who, um, who, who carried himself in, as an able and a capable young man, able of leading well. So we know that he's a young man. We know that he's got leadership capabilities. Solomon saw him as a threat. And so when people started to say, hey, Solomon, have you seen Jeroboam? He's a really wise and capable leader. He's a good young man. Maybe you need to put him in your cabinet. Maybe you need to make, give him a leadership role. Maybe, Solomon saw him as a threat, and so Solomon pursued him, and so he ran off to Egypt. So Jeroboam runs off to Egypt. Jeroboam hears that Solomon has died. Jeroboam comes back because he believes that there's a group of the people that would want to make him king instead of Solomon's son, Rehoboam king. Are you with me? All right, so there's, there's a lot of nonsense going on. It's kind of like the whole book of 1 Kings. There's political nonsense going on. There's, there's, there's power plays. There's really ungodly activity happening behind the scenes in order to gain power and achieve power and do all of those things. And that leads us to 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 1. And here's what it says about Rehoboam. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all of Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. Then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. 
And they sent and they called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam this. And this is going to sound really familiar to you because it's the same kind of language that the people of God in Israel sent to Pharaoh when they were enslaved to Pharaoh. Here's what he says. Your father has made the yoke heavy. The workload is too heavy on the people. There's too much work that's going on. It's too hard and it's too difficult. And this rapid expansion and growth and all these things that we're doing have made it difficult. And so it says, now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and the heavy yoke on us and we will serve you. And he said to them this, go away and for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. So, so he's handling it pretty well, right? So far, so good. People come to him and they say, listen, the ways of Solomon, this rapid expansion, growth at the expense of people, this pain that's following us, this, this difficult work, this heavy load that you have placed on us is too much. And so he says, go away, and in three days I'll make my decision. So come back in three days. And then what he does is he goes and he seeks his counsel. Right, so he talks to the leaders that are old leaders who were with Solomon, and then he talks to the young leaders who are with him, and he begins to make a decision. But here's what we begin to see about division in this chapter. The first point is that division begins with pride. Division always begins with our inability to see others. It's an inability to actually look at others', others situations and have empathy. It's an inability to put ourselves in someone else's position. And, 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 and what happens in the midst of that, every time we do that, we choose pride. And what we do when we choose pride is we say that I prefer my will over God's will. I prefer my way over others' way. And so I'm choosing the glory of the best. I'm choosing not to look at other people and what's going on in them. I'm choosing to choose what's going on in me, Thomas Aquinas said that pride was the cause of every sin. G.K. Chesterton said, if I had one sermon to preach, it would always be a sermon against pride. T.S. Eliot said, most of the trouble in the world is caused by people wanting to be more important than they actually are. In the medieval church, they believed that pride was the sin. It was the root of all sin. It was the original sin. It was the first sin, and every sin is rooted in some way in some level of pride, in some level of choosing my will over another will. The Bible has a whole lot to say about pride, and let me break it to you, it's not good what it says about pride. In James 4, chapter 6, it says this, God opposes the proud, right? That's huge. Like, it's not saying God doesn't like it when you're prideful. Stop doing that. God opposes. He actually stands against the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride always comes before destruction and a haughty spirit comes before the fall. Philippians 2, 3 says, do nothing out of vain conceit or rivalry, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Jesus taught about pride. God taught Israel about pride. The golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself, is about pride. The, the foundation of everything we build on as followers of Christ is built on this idea of pride. And, and the, the thing that makes pride most dangerous is it not only causes us not to see others, it causes us not to see ourselves. It creates this blurred vision in every area of our life because the greatest desire of everyone in your life is to be seen. 
Like, I can't tell you of how many people I have walked through marriage trouble with, who I have counseled in the middle of marriage struggles, who have chosen to get a divorce or who have chosen to reconcile, and the core issue of all of it is that one or both of them feels completely unseen by the other. You don't see me. You don't see what I do. You don't see the work that I help. The, the heart of, of almost every workplace controversy is that someone in the organization doesn't feel seen or someone isn't seen or someone isn't recognized or someone else is recognized all the time so that nobody else is recognized. There's all of these things that happen and all of them revolve around the ability of us to see. Pride doesn't simply cause us to not see each other. It causes us not to see ourselves. It blurs our vision everywhere. And it has a blinding effect on our life. It has the power to distort reality. And it's something that every one of us struggles at some point. It's, it's a human condition. But it's something we need to learn how to see in ourselves. Part of discipleship is learning to pay attention to your inner life. It's learning to pay attention to our motives and motivations. It's learning what happens beneath the surface of our life. And so it's recognizing pride in our life. And I, I want to talk really quickly about two different types of pride I see right now in our culture that are causing all kinds of pro problems. The first is political pride. It is an ideological pride. And what happens is our political ideologies become idols that we worship at. And so it no longer becomes, I just prefer this candidate, I support this candidate. It becomes something that is ultimate to it becomes something that causes us to break relationships with one another. It becomes something that causes us to hurt each other. And so uh, when our ideology becomes an idol, it allows us to treat others poorly. Because this is the idol in our life. And, and so here's some signs or some symptoms of that kind of ideology. Um, the first is that anybody who disagrees with me is an enemy. If you disagree with my political stance, then you are my enemy. And I've got to treat you as such. The second is when someone attacks my party, they attack me. When somebody attacks my political affiliation, I actually feel attacked myself. Uh, the third is you can't name anything wrong with the political party that you support. Right? If you're in a place where you're saying, this is my political party, and these are the holy ones, and this is the political party here, and these are the evil ones, and everything over here is holy, and everything over here is evil, I'm just telling you your vision is blurred. There is lots of evil on both sides. There is plenty of evil to go around. Um, and then the last symptom is that politics has taken over your life. Like I, I was talking to somebody this weekend who said, I am terrified of Tuesday. Like, I am terrified of what's going to happen on Tuesday. And listen, I, I, I have very strong views on what I would like to happen on Tuesday. But no matter what happens on Tuesday, God is still in control. God is still good. God is still on his throne. God is still with us and for us and present. And if we re learn anything through the book of 1 Kings, it is that God's people survive through bad leaders. Over and over again, we see that. The second kind of pride is a theological pride. Um, it, it's we end up using our very theology to create our own merit. It's my church is better than that church. My theology is better than your theology. My way is better than your way. And no matter how hard we try and run from the sin, we keep getting caught up in this slippery slope of theological pride. I would argue that the root of Christian division is not differences in politics, theology, doctrine, origin, culture, practice, but it's pride. 
in a divided church, a divided Christianity always does a terrible job of witnessing to the world. It always does a terrible job of modeling division. Because here's what God always does. God always gives us eyes to see. He gives us eyes to see those around us. He gives us eyes to see the way the world works. He gives us heavenly insight into how the the kingdoms of the world work and the kingdoms of heaven work. He allows us to have empathy and compassion and love and grace for the least of these and for those around us who are in need of compassion and empathy and love and grace. Everybody wants to be seen, and the people of God have to be the seers. When my daughter was little, she used to uh, crawl up on my lap, and she, she would do this thing where she would run off and play, and then she would crawl back up on my lap. And then she would run off and play, and then she would crawl back up on my lap. And she would run and play, and she would, there was this constant coming back to the Father. There was this constantly, like, she wanted to just crawl on my lap. She didn't want to sit there. She didn't want to cuddle. She didn't want to be there. She just wanted to know that I saw her. And so she would climb up on my lap. And I remember one day I was on the front porch, and I was texting somebody. And we used to have a porch swing on our front porch. And I was sitting on the porch swing, and she was playing in the front yard, chasing butterflies or doing something out in the front yard, and I was texting somebody, and it was something happening at the church, and it felt significant, and it felt important, and so I'm doing this thing, and, and my little girl keeps crawling up on my lap, and she'll crawl up, and, and she'll just kiss me on the cheek, and then run off and play, or she'll crawl up, and, and I'm just not paying any attention to her. I don't know, parents, if you've gotten to that skill of parenting, where like your kids are crawling all over you, and you're still zeroed in on whatever else. That's what I was doing in that moment, and I remember she took my face like this, turned it towards hers. I feel like the world right now is looking at the church and they're wanting to turn the faces and say, do you see me? Do you see me? Do you see what's going on in my life? Do you see the hurts that I'm experiencing? Do you see the pain that's going on? Do you see the hardship that I've endured? Can you see me? And the people of God are called to turn our face to those around us. Look at them. Scripture talks over and over again about how when we become followers of Christ, we're given new eyes to see the world. We're given a new vision. Verse 6, let's continue. It says, Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while they, he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer the people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to these people and serve them and speak good words to them and answer them, they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel of the old men gave him, and he took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. Isn't this a sign of what young people do? <laughs> they don't want to hear the wisdom of wise counsel from somebody that's gone before them, and they choose instead to hear the counsel of somebody that confirms what they already want to hear. The second thing that happens with division is that division continues with a lack of wisdom. It's not just an inability to see, it's an inability to hear. It's not just that we don't see each other, it's that we're not able to hear the pain of others around us. We're not able to discern what is right and what is good and what is true and what is false. And the problem for for Rehoboam is not just his inability to see that the yoke that he's given his people is too hard, it's an inability to actually hear wise counsel that others represent. He won't listen to wise counsel. I don't know if you've ever sought counsel of people 
and the only reason you're seeking counsel of them is you want someone to confirm what you already want. Have you ever done that? I'm going to ask three different people, and I'm going to hope that one of those people agrees with me because I just need somebody to agree with me so that I can do this thing because I really want to do this thing. It's pride again, right? I don't actually want to seek wise counsel. I just want someone to confirm my confirmation bias. I just don't want someone to confirm what I'm happening. Confirmation bias is this. It's, it's you see what you want to see and you hear what you want to hear. And so everything goes through the lens of confirming your own opinions. I'll, I'll give you some examples of this. Um, last week, I preached a sermon about the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom uh, of, of heaven. And, and the, 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 the theme of last week's message was seek first the kingdom of God. At the end of that message, I walked out of the service, either in here or out there, and I had one person grab me and say, I'm so glad that you preached that message confirming candidate A. And I was like, what? I just said, okay, thanks. Like, I don't even know how to respond to that, right? The next service, I walked out of the service and somebody said, I'm so glad you preached that message confirming candidate B. Two different candidates. Now, they listened to the same sermon. They listened to the same message. And neither, in neither of those messages did I support any candidate in any way. And they both walked away with complete confirmation bias of my pastor is confirming my candidate. That's confirmation bias. It's that we hear what we want to hear. It's that we listen to what we want to listen to. It's that every time we listen, we're only listening to confirm our own biases. Here is simply a confirmation of what you believe. Uh, I, here's what I'm learning. I, I'm learning that we don't need to change the quality of information that we're giving to people. Like, I used to think that I just needed to preach better sermons. I'm starting to learn that when you become a follower of Christ, you actually have to teach people to see the world differently. Because we have these lenses in which we see the world. And what God wants to do is erase those lenses and give us a new lens. In Acts 26, verse 16, Paul is talking about his salvation, and he says this, But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a service and witness to these things in which you have seen, and to the things which I will appear to you. So God's showing up to Paul, saying, I have given, remember, Paul was blind, right? He was blind. He was blinded in this moment when he met God. That's what happened to him. And so there's this thing that's happening here where he's saying, I will appear to you, and I want you to learn the things that I've taught you. I want you to confirm the ways that I've taught you to see. And then it says this, to whom I am sending you, which is the Gentiles, I want you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness and light. What he's saying is, I have changed the way that you see, Paul. And your job now is to go change the way that other people see. God doesn't want to just teach us a few little facts on how to live a better life. He wants us to give us an entire new lens to see the world. I've opened your eyes, so now I want you to open the eyes of others. So let's talk about how this works a little bit in our culture. Um, there was an article written by um, uh, uh, George Barna, who's the leading um, kind of uh, data collector and acknowledger of what's happening in the actual church. So he surveys thousands and thousands of Christians from all over the place, and he just gives facts about this is what the church is believing these days. And he releases these um, about every six months, a new report on new different findings. Um, the, the one that he released recently is about race and ethnicity. Um, and, and one of the questions on the survey was, do you believe that race is a problem in the United States now? 
here's what I want you to understand. I want you to understand how two different groups of people can view the world in two completely different ways. These are all followers of Christ. These are all people that walk with Jesus. White Christians, last year, 40% of them said race is a problem in our country in 2019. In 2020, that number went down 7%. And white Christians said this year, 33% of them said race is a problem in our country now. 7% of Christians, white Christians, said race is becoming less of a problem in our culture. Black Christians, here, 75% of them said race is a problem in our country. 75% versus 40%, right? This year, 81% of black Christians said race is a problem in our country right now. Two different types of believers who are viewing the world completely differently and who are unable to see each other and hear each other because of pride. A complete inability to listen and a complete failure to do anything except confirm our own biases. The white church has to become a place where we begin to listen and learn from our black brothers and sisters. We have to listen to their hurt and to their pain. I have heard and seen more things that are deeply offensive to me over the last six months as a father of a black child than I could ever explain to you. More things that are tone deaf and lack empathy and lack compassion. More things that are biased and out of control with racism. I've gotten to a point where I have unfollowed so many people on social media. I'm fine with you disagreeing with me about a candidate. I'm not fine with you posting racist things. I've gotten away from it and had to run from it because there's this inability to have any sense of compassion to our black brothers and sisters, 81% of them who are saying, there is a problem and I need you to listen to me. There is a problem and I need you to hear me. And what we do, rather than sitting at a table with someone and saying, I want to learn, help me to see, help me to understand, help me to know your perspective, teach me empathy, teach me compassion, teach me love, teach me grace, teach me kindness, teach me. What we do is we confirm our own biases and we double down on them. I was on a call with a group of pastors this week. It was a a large call, a bunch of pastors on the call, and one of the pastors got in, and he was kind of loud. There's always a loud pastor in the pastor's group, right? There's always one that really wants to be seen and heard, and there was one guy that was kind of loud, and he was talking and sharing, and and he was going off on COVID. And and listen, I I know there's a lot of different views on COVID and how serious it is and how unserious it is, but but he kept going back to the 1% thing, the 1% thing. Like, uh, there's only 1% of people are dying. Like, I don't know why we're throwing a fit. I don't know why we've closed our churches. I don't know why we're caring. I don't know why we're wearing masks. I don't know why we're doing all these things. It's just 1%. It's just 1%. It's just 1%. And everybody was just like, hey, bud, like, we don't really need to talk about that here. Like, go ahead. Do your thing. And, and, and the guy left the call. And at the end of the call, there was like four pastors left. And one of the pastors on the call got really teary-eyed. And he said, hey, I'm, I'm really sorry. He said, I just like, he said, it's the 1% thing that I just can't handle. Because included in that 1% is my mom, my uncle, my brother, and my sister. I've lost four family members in the last six months to COVID. The way that we talk about our political talking points can show so much of a lack of empathy or compassion to others around us. 
The way we talk about what we believe can be so biased and out of control that we stop and we don't even want to hear or see somebody else. And there's people in the room right now that believe COVID is a really big deal, and that's great. And there's people in the room that believe it's not a big deal at all, and that's great. But the way that you treat each other matters to me. The way that we talk about these things matter to me. And when you talk about this disease, when you talk about what's going on in our country, I want you to think about the person who has lost four family members. I want you to think about your black brothers and sisters who are saying we are hurting and we are struggling and we need you to pay attention. And it's been year after year, century after century, decade after decade, that the white church has failed to listen to the black church, which is why the church is so divided on Sunday morning. We've got to turn our eyes and become more attentive. Matthew chapter 13, verse 16 says, I will give you eyes to see and ears to hear. I cannot tell you guys how many times that's my prayer. Like, if you want to understand, when I walk into a room and I know that there's conflict in the room, which in COVID there's been a lot of it, right? When I get on a phone call with somebody who's mad at me because they think I'm doing something that I'm probably not doing or because I did something that I shouldn't have done or because something's happening, whenever I get on those calls, my prayer before I get on those calls is, Lord, would you give me eyes to see and ears to hear? Would you give me eyes to see this person that's in front of me, even if their language and the way that they're treating me isn't of the kingdom, would you teach me to listen? Would you teach me to hear them with your ears? Would you teach me to see them with your eyes? Would you teach me that this person in front of me is created in your image by you and for you? And no matter how they're behaving or acting right now, they are an image bearer of the Most High God, and I need to treat them as such. And so will you teach me to have compassion? Guys, I'm so bad at that. I'm so bad at it, which is why I have to pray over and over again for it. It's why I have to pray over and over again, Lord, give me eyes to see, give me eyes to see, Give me your eyes every time we enter into conflict. Give me your eyes to see. Verse 9 says, So Rehoboam said to them, What do you advise that we answer the people who have said this to me? Lighten the yoke that your father put on us. And the young men who had grown up with him said, Thus you shall speak to the people, and you shall say to them, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs, which just feels like an awkward statement. And now, therefore, whereas my father laid a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined with you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. He's doubling down, right? And notice how similar this language is to Pharaoh's language, right? When God's people came to them and and Moses said, let my people go, and Pharaoh said, no, we're going to increase the workload is what we're actually going to do. It's the same kind of language. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day, and the king said, come to me again on the third day. And the king answered the people harshly, forsaking the counsel of the old men that they had given him. And he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. He left out the finger and the thigh thing. And then he said this, the king did not listen to the people. And you know what the very next header in scripture is? The kingdom was divided. If we want to know how division works in our country, if we want to know how division works in our marriages, if we want to know how division works in our workplace, if we want to know how division works in the church, it works like this. We don't see or hear each other. That's how it works. Rehoboam's inability to see or to hear 
caused this division. And the last point is that division continues when we seek selfish power versus empowerment. We have an inability to act justly or an inability to feel. So what happens is we've got all these confirmation biases that are piling up. We've got this staggering lack of empathy and people that are hurting. And and what we're going through as a nation right now is a combined trauma that we've not experienced since I've been alive. Right? So I'm, I'm getting older. I'm 45 now. Right? In my 45 years of life, I don't know that we've reached a point in our country's history where there's been a combined trauma where everybody around us is hurting in some way. Everybody has been affected by COVID. Everybody has been affected by 2020. Everybody has been affected by all of these things that are happening. And when we're all hurting, what's happening is the roots of our culture are showing their fruit. The roots of a culture that says, I look out for me first. I take care of mine first. I do what's most important to me. You know what the majority of Christians said when they were asked who they will vote for? The majority of Christians said, I will vote for the person who helps me the most. That is the antithesis of Christianity. That is the opposite of what Jesus teaches over and over again. We're supposed to look out for the least of these. We're supposed to care for the broken and the hurting. We're supposed to vote for the people who will take care of the people who are not like us, not just the people that are like us. We're not doubling down on our confirmation and on our bias. We're doubling down on grace and mercy and love and peace and kindness and gentleness and wisdom. And over and over again in 2020, this idea of it's all about me, it's all about me, it's all about me, it's all about me has stirred itself in a pot up so highly that there is division everywhere. And we as the people of God have to understand that the way we get to unity is by listening and hearing. Rehoboam wanted to be in control and in charge, and he viewed mercy and kindness and gentleness and love as weakness rather than a strength. I want everybody to know that the fruits of the Spirit are strength and not weakness. Forgiving your enemies is strength and not weakness. Admitting your failures and asking for forgiveness is strength and not weakness. Showing grace to someone who is not showing grace to you is mercy. It is strength and not weakness. Over and over and over again, we have to realize that we are called to walk in the fruits of the Spirit. And we can be people who disagree. Listen, I'm I'm not suggesting that all of us need to agree. There are people in our church that are going to vote on different sides of the aisle on Tuesday, and God bless you, you do your thing. But I am saying we cannot keep treating each other this way can't keep doing that. And we can't keep doubling down on a lack of empathy and compassion and love because what that's going to do in our homes, in our families. I talked to somebody this week who said, I can't talk to my parents anymore. I just can't. I haven't talked to them in months because of political things. I talked to somebody who said, our marriage is in crisis because she's voting for candidate A and I'm voting for candidate B and we can't even have a conversation. I don't care who you vote for. I do care about how you treat each other. And I do care that we become a people who listen and hear. And so here's three questions I want you to think about. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says, If one of us suffers, then all of us suffer. But if one member is honored, then all of us rejoice 
together. We are one body. We are one body. We are one body. The church is one body that is unified by one spirit, by one God who calls us to to, to love and compassion and kindness and grace and generosity. So here's the questions that I want to ask you today is, where are the areas of your life where you're failing to see others and show empathy and compassion? Is there somebody in your life right now who you have just not wanted to see their perspective? You've not wanted to come to the table with them. You've not wanted to listen to them and learn from them. And it's just easier for you to name them as an enemy and, and, and just say, I'm done with them. And what would it look like for us to be the people who prepare a table in the presence of our enemies? That's what God does, so that's what we do. We prepare a table in the presence of our enemies so that we can meet with them, so that we can love them, so that we can show compassion. Who's the person that you need to listen to right now? Who's the person that you need to listen to without trying to change their mind and telling them they're wrong and telling them all the things that they've done wrong in their life, but you just need to listen to their perspective? Because here's the thing that I'm finding in my life, guys. Whenever I set the table, whenever I prepare a table in the presence of my enemies, whenever I pray, Lord, as I sit at that table, will you teach me to see them with your eyes? Will you teach me to listen with your ears? What begins to happen is the table brings us together. What begins to happen is the Spirit of God works in such a way that I start to understand that my differences are not as big as the differences that I thought they were, that the the, the great divide between us is not a divide that needs to split the nation. Rehoboam reached a point in this moment where he could have listened, he could have heard, he could have seen, he could have shown empathy, he could have shown compassion, he could have shown uh, uh, love and grace, he could have set a table in the presence of Jeroboam and there wouldn't have been a divided kingdom. But he doubled down on division. He doubled down on worldly power. He doubled down on enemy making. And he doubled down on the ways of the world versus the ways of the kingdom. So can we just take a moment as we move into the time of communion, can we just say, Lord, search my heart. If there's anything in me, because here's the thing that I realize over and over and over again, if pride causes me not to see others, then it causes me not to see myself. And so there's so much pride in me that's still there and still exists. So I need to constantly go to the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, teach me. I need to constantly go to others and say, is there any sin in me? Is there any brokenness in me? Is there anything in me that I need to grow in? Then I need to be humble. So as we move into a time of communion, as we take the bread and the juice, there's two tables on the side over here if you need to collect it in the room. I just want you to go to the Father and just say, all right, Lord, where has my pride caused me not to be able to see What's the table that you're asking me to sit? Who's the enemy I'm called to invite? But something's going to happen on Tuesday. Or Wednesday or Thursday. (laughs) Who knows when it's going to happen. But when it's all said and done, we are one body. We are one church. And we are committed to follow you. So Heavenly Father, I pray that your spirit would move and work among us pray that you would teach us kindness and compassion and grace and empathy and love. I pray that you would teach us not to be in the business of enemy making, but to be in the business of peace making. And that doesn't mean that we don't speak up when things are unjust. It doesn't mean that we don't call things that are not right, not right. 
it does mean that we make every effort to live at peace with those among us today. So, Father, I pray that you would teach us how to be peacemakers. I pray that you would teach us how to be listeners. I pray that you would teach us how to hear and how to see the world around us. In your holy name we pray.